Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit SubChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, our op-eds, videos, and of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who clings to his vintage pleather clutch purse and Playboy brand belt buckle like his Trump-loving neighbors cling to their god and their guns, <laughs> Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, I should add, is now shorn of that fulsome thicket that once sprouted obscenely from his face and neck and is quite dapper looking, I have to say. Jeremy, <laughs> a new Jeremy. Greet the people. Hello, people. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, no chance of uh, getting a COVID-free barber in this part of the country at the moment, so I had to just uh, do a hack job. Go all the way down. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's jump in. What do you do when the world you know is coming to an end? After uh, this awful year, thankfully, now almost over, I, I can't say it's a question I haven't been asking myself. And if you were a resident of the old international settlement in Shanghai 80 years ago, facing the reality of Japanese occupation and a tenuous existence on the Gudao, the lonely island of the international settlement, the answer might very well have been, go to the racetrack and bet on the ponies. Our friend James Carter, Jay, has written a marvelous and highly engaging book about the city of Shanghai, featuring a diverse and fascinating cast of characters, all of them reckoning with the end of their world. Jay focuses on the last time that the champion stakes, he'll explain what that is momentarily, that the champion stakes was run at the Shanghai Race Club, just three weeks before Pearl Harbor on November 12, 1941. It's a really good book, and I highly recommend it. Indeed, indeed it is. Uh, Jay is professor of history at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And he's also the author of one of our favorite columns on SubChina. I think I speak for both of us, which is called This Week in China's History, uh, which he's been contributing since the uh, it was June of this year. And he's, he's covered stuff from the Tiananmen protests of 89 to the Boxer Uprising from the Taiping Civil War to a Sino-Russian basketball game in 1926, and from the McCartney mission up to the arrest and sentencing of Uyghur intellectual Ilham Tokti in 2014. It's a, a wonderful column, and we're extremely grateful to Jay for contributing it. Jay Carter, welcome to Seneca, and a belated congrats on the book. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure, and in 2020, pleasures are, are hard to come by, so all the more appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to laugh a little too long at that. <laughs> um, Jay, I am curious because horse racing is something I knew next to nothing about before reading your book. Um, I never read Seabiscuit and I have never even been to a racetrack, let alone watched a horse race at a racetrack. So what did you know about horse racing before you started researching this book? I can't say that I knew a ton about horse racing. I mean, I, I was a casual fan of racing and, and like many folks, in the U.S. anyway, I'd pay attention uh, you know, to the Kentucky Derby and then, depending on how that went, maybe some of the other Triple Crown races. Um, so I wasn't a big racing fan. I was a big sports fan. Um, and in fact, I, I spent some time uh, paying a lot more attention to, to motor racing when I was a kid growing up. We had a, we had a track in the town I grew up in. Um, so the, Where was that, Jay? I was in Connecticut. Um, so it's not the kind of place okay. where we associate with, with uh, stock car racing. But yeah, there was, a, there was an old track, which has since alas been turned into a mall. But um, but in terms of, of racing, I really came at it from the attraction to sports and then the idea that sports was a way that, uh, that you could see different people from different places coming together and doing their thing. And so, well, that 
that caught up with my day job as being a China historian and all came together at Champions Day. So I'm curious. I mean, it seems like an unlikely vehicle for telling the story of Shanghai during the Nanjing decade and, and its denouement. Uh, but I have to hand it to you. I mean, it really worked. And I should hasten to add that the book has all sorts of historical asides. It's not, you know, merely focused on the race. The race is, is the, you know, kind of the, the trunk. But there are all sorts of branches that are offered there, you know, for context and, and, and more. And they stretch back as far as the 18th century and they cover, you know, the Opium War and the Taiping Rebellion and, and all sorts of other stuff. But so how did it occur to you to make racing and the Shanghai Race Club really the focus of the book? How did it strike you as like the right vehicle for this? Well, it, okay, so I've been doing this now for 20 plus years. And over the course of, of as I was looking for a new project, it dawned on me that what I was really writing about and really mostly teaching about and researching was the history of relations between China and the West. Uh, and I'd done that in a number of different venues. So I, I wrote about the city of Harbin and the, the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, wrote about a Chinese monk uh, who was founding temples in these sort of semi-colonial or colonial cities. And uh, I found that in if I was going to write about the history of of China and the West, there's really no better place to do that than in Shanghai. And so when I spent my first my first trips to Shanghai, uh, looked around the city, I hadn't been there. I was actually, I'd been in China for more than a decade of working mainly in the North uh, before I ever set foot in Shanghai and found this big, big oval in the center of the city, People's Square, which uh, of course isn't square. And as I, as I poked around, I discovered that that had been the racetrack. And just looking at that, it seemed to be the, the perfect kind of physical place that was at the center of the city. And as I started looking into it, it became clear that there was not only a physical center of the city, but it was really a cultural, a social and economic center of the city as well. And so that just seemed like a natural, given my, given my uh, proclivities toward looking for a good, a good sporting story to tell that all came together and it seemed like the, the place where it was all going to happen. But how I came to settle on the one day is yet another kind of another aspect to that, which we can, we can get into if you want. Well, let's get into it. What was the significance of the Champions Stakes and of Champions Day? So, as with any historian, I'm always, you know, trying to fight the urge to push us back further and further into the past. So, when I started looking at writing about just a single day, which I had in mind just as a as a as a narrative device, just to make it structured on, on one day, but I realized that that one day wasn't going to make a lot of sense unless I had some people had some understanding of why that day was significant. So the Champion Stakes began back in the 1850s and 60s with the founding of the Shanghai Race Club, and initially there were two seasons. I mean, there were always two seasons, but there were also what they called extra race meetings, which would happen throughout the year. But the two seasons were in the spring and in the fall, and the highlight of each season would have been what was called the Champions Stakes, and that would have been a race among all of the winning horses from that season. So it was really the, the best of the best. It was the Super Bowl, the World Series, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to put onto it. And so that would happen twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall. And it would be a holiday in the international settlement. Most of the businesses would close. You would pack people in to come watch the races. You would have, depending on the year, anywhere between ten and 40,000 people that might, might show up at the track to watch, to watch the races. And it's important to note that from the very beginning, most of those crowds were overwhelmingly Chinese. So even though the, the club was founded by Brits and it was run by, by, uh, by foreigners, um, most of the people who were at the races for any of these for any of these races would have been uh, would have been Chinese. Yeah, and, and as I was reading the book, I came to suspect that there's kind of a double entendre in the word race uh, that was the real foundation of of the work. Uh, race meaning both you know a contest of speed on the one hand, and and race also meaning this kind of socially constructed way that we we group human beings on the other. Uh, let's talk about race in the book, starting with this. Um, did you worry that while writing, you might be paying too much attention to the, the transnational colonialism facet of Shanghai and not enough to the Chinese who were, you know, in the audience, as you say, and made up the majority of race goers? Absolutely. I mean, that was something that was really, and really at the heart of the book was trying to get a true picture of Shanghai and to, to give a true picture of Shanghai, that had to be one that acknowledged the importance of these transnational colonials, but also acknowledged that the city, even in the international settlement, was well over 90% Chinese. So what did it look like, uh, and how did, that, how did that environment come together? And so I tried to do it in kind of a handful 
of different characters. And as we've, we've talked in the past about, there's just a bunch of different characters that come together. Um, certainly the protagonists in many ways are these white men and a couple of women who own the horses. Um, Cornell Franklin is an American, Arthur Henchman, who's, who's an Englishman, uh, Bob Aitkenhead, who's a Brit. Um, but they are just a, a part of the story. And so in many ways, what I found is that the, that the, the energy that, that Shanghai manifest is really coming from Chinese, uh, the Chinese people, and that includes the Chinese who are at the track, but also you have this other elite level of, of Chinese who are, who I mean, you talk about the social construct of race, they're not permitted to really be full members of this Shanghai elite society because of racism. And yet, in every other way, they illustrate the kinds of lives that the, that the wealthy Americans and Brits were, were living. So people like Dayu Dun, the architect, people like Ying Tang, uh, who's an actress, people like Nate Swang, who's a, a newspaper editor and publisher. So these are people who are, who are all in, they're all in the same space. Um, and so I was really trying to be conscious of the fact that, yeah, the, the artifice of this whole story, the race club, was a, a kind of racist institution that was, that was representing imperialism, not just representing it, but acting out imperialism. And yet the, the environment that was there was one that was partaken of by people uh, from all across the, the ethnic, social, economic, cultural strata of, of Shanghai. Uh, Jay, a, a related question. You push back a bit on the idea of Shanghai as truly cosmopolitan. Uh, and, you know, I think this reflects a very different sensibility writing about it now than might have been the case for a writer even perhaps 20 years ago. Uh, you write specifically at one point that white men held too much power to call the city truly cosmopolitan, for instance. Um, of course, historical writing reliably, you know, illustrates as much about the times that a writer lives in as it does about the times that he or she is actually writing about. And you obviously read an awful lot about this period written either contemporaneously or in the half century since the war. So how would you characterize the difference in the way that you approach the topic from uh, the way people of an earlier generation did? No, that's a great way to, to put it. And, and I'm always I'm, I'm always very conscious that history, history gets to, you know, has, it's a tripod, right? You've got You've got the past, which, with apologies to science fiction, can't ever change. It happened once. It's not going to happen again. You've got the present, which is where we're stuck. We can't be anyplace else. And then you've got that third uh, leg. <laughs> uh, oh, which, woe is that? <laughs> um, but don't worry. There'll be a new present coming very, very soon. Um, that, uh, and then there's that third piece, which is your sources. Um, and so all those, those three pieces interact to give us. That's why history is constantly changing, even though the past always stays the same. So right. in terms of how I'm looking, what I'm looking at it, yes, absolutely. Uh, issues of representation, issues of understanding, um, you know, romanticizing the colonial period in, in uh, Shanghai is, is, is really troublesome. Um, you know, as, as our, our friend Jeremiah Jenny put it, it's kind of icky. Um, <laughs> and so there is, there is a, a real problem with, with trying to get at Shanghai because you have to wade through this sort of colonialism without romanticizing it. Um, at the same time, I think that the in the communist era, you've got a historiography that comes out about Shanghai as being really one of you know one of Dante's circles of hell because it's just defined by exploitation and by cruelty and by by all, all sorts of of to quote Jeremiah again ickiness. But I think that you know all those things are present together, and I think if we leave them any of them out, we do a disservice to our understanding of the past. And so Shanghai was a place that had. I mean, gosh, it just had so much energy that was there. And a lot of that energy was used for ill, and a lot of that energy was, was used for good, but it, it was all energy there that we need to, if we're going to be honest with it, with ourselves, we need to, we need to take all of those parts, the, the, the positive and the negative. I think that's really where your book succeeds. I mean, it does something pretty difficult. I mean, that's not an easy needle to thread, if you ask me. Uh, a lot of reviewers of, of the book have pointed this out, including our own Alex Smith. Uh, she she uh, reviewed the book. I'm sure you saw it. It was on our site. And she talked about uh, how you complicate some of the narratives around Shanghai and, and about China. And, you know, we've just talked just now about how you complicate that kind of, you know, modernist cosmopolitan narrative. Uh, but also, you know, Shanghai as the epitome of Western imperialism. I mean, it's not that either, right? I mean, you... 
you manage to to push back on on the whole narrative of you know just colonial exploitation, but you know still you don't downplay the realities of like the May thirtieth uh, movement or you know the Shanghai massacre that precipitated that, uh, or you know the realities of racial discrimination. So what's your do you have a rule of thumb? I mean this is something that I think um, listeners to this show. A, a lot of them, you know, try to write about about China, and it, it's it's a difficult thing to do. What are the rules of thumb you rely on when you try to navigate this, or do you just have sort of an innate instinct that's just been honed by 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 time and experience? Uh, what, how do you approach this? I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a rule of thumb. Um, I mean, I have to say that my my editor at Norton, I mean, she pushed me really hard, and and the book is immeasurably better. Uh, because of her input and some of her colleagues who kind of looked at things and and come at it from a different angle. Because I I guess the rule of thumb is to never be comfortable. Because anytime mm. something seems like that it's 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 un unproblematically great, um, that probably means that there's a problem in me that I'm not I'm not understanding what the problem is. And at the same time, if it seems unproblematically bad, that also means we need to we need to dig a little bit harder to get to get at what's really going on. So I don't know if I have a rule of thumb, except that to, if, if things seem to be too easy, it, it means that they probably are and that we need to, we need to do better. That said, it, it struck me that writing about the Shanghai Race Club was uh, in some ways a perfect way to get at the kind of complications we've been trying to talk about. Can you tell us about race and the Shanghai Race Club and about the International Recreation Club and how it was created in response largely to the exclusion of Chinese from the Shanghai Race Club? So the the history of racing in in China, now, of course, Chinese people and people in East Asia, whether they were part of what we call now called China or not, um, they've been racing horses for a long, long time. Um, but the notion of horse racing that that we might recognize um, on our TV screens come well on a normal in a normal year come come May um, is is something that comes of, comes from with the British. So almost as soon as the tr- the ink is dry on the Treaty of Nanjing, you have um, race courses set up in Shanghai and in Hong Kong. Uh, and in fact, the two never quite come to agreement as to which one was first. Hong Kong was probably first, but but don't tell that to the to the folks in Shanghai, at least at the time. So um, these race clubs, I mean, they did. They sprang up alongside imperialism. So they come up in all the treaty ports. By the peak of all this in the 1920s, you had multiple. You had race clubs in multiple cities, uh, and several cities, including Shanghai, Beijing, had more than one had more than one racetrack. So in Shanghai, the issue was this. Uh, the people who founded the race club in the 1850s uh, wanted to replicate England. They decided to do it in a way that was uh, racist and imperialist, uh, and they did so by excluding uh, non-white members. So you had to be white to be a member of the Shanghai Race Club. Now, that didn't mean you had to be white to go to the races, um, but it meant to be to own a horse, to be a member of the club, you had to be white. And this went on for a little while, and then... At some point, some of the of the folks in the and I use the word loosely, um, some of the gentlemen in the club, they determined that they didn't want to even have any non-Europeans in the in the grandstands at all. So they made it that you could to be to attend, you had to be a member. And of course, since to be a member, you had to be white. That meant that there were no Chinese there. So two things happened in response to that. One, uh, and most uh, kind of most positively, the Chinese members. Uh, the, sorry, the Chinese horse owners, because there are Chinese, remember, they're wealthy Chinese in Shanghai, um, and they founded their own track. Uh, they went and founded a new track up in Jiangwan, which is to the north up near where Fudan University is and, and uh, has another part to play in the Champions Day story. But they started their own race club, which wound up being financed, in fact, by Europeans. And so the membership was mixed. Um, was mixed. Uh, and then, in fact, a third race club gets founded out near where the Yangtze enters into the sea. And that one excluded... Um, Europeans. So it was a Chinese-only race club. So The Yangtzepu. The Yangtzepu. Um, yeah. Now, the thing that happened back in the race club is, the, the I said two things happened. The other thing that happened was that the Europeans recognized that actually this wasn't very much fun, um, having this without any without any any people there, um, because the crowd was so so diminished. And so then they changed their policies to admit people of all of all races and nationalities into the uh, into the grandstands, though never into membership in the in the club, so that year that 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 period when they were excluding Chinese altogether lasted just a few years, um, but uh, but the consequences I think were were 
or serious because they made the people kind of a little more cognizant of the hypocrisy that they were that they were advocating in trying to in trying to have this this whites only institution in the center of a ninety percent Chinese uh, city. I guess we could call that colonialism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, so we've talked about the the people in the stands, the people who own the club, uh, who own the horses that raced. But what about the horses themselves? Uh, I mean, we we they talk about the you know the Chinese ponies. These are are these all the sort of short short legged, really kind of small. Uh, ponies that you see in Mongolia, or were you allowed, for example, would you if you brought in an Arabian? I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be a very fair race, right? No, and this was and this was constantly at the at the people worried about this all the time. So, just your first question. So, yeah, these these ponies were pathetic looking. I think from by the standard of most horse owners today, uh, they weren't thoroughbreds. Yeah. They weren't even properly horses. They were. I mean, they were these Mongolian ponies. Which, if you've seen these Prejavalsky horses. Yeah, um, Baltese horses. So yeah. that's what they really looked like. They were kind of short and kind of broad and kind of shaggy. Many horses. Yeah, they were. They were small. And, and you see pictures of the owners leading in their horses. Oftentimes the owner is standing taller than the horse. Um, and so people who came in from out of town to watch the races, they were at first kind of taken aback by this because it seemed, it seemed a little bit, uh, well, not quite as, as dignified as they were expecting. <laughs> um, but you did have other, you had thoroughbreds who were imported from Australia usually, but they had to run separately. And so, okay, and because right. there's a, because there's a continuum, I mean, when, when is a horse no longer a pony? When is it, when does it edge over into being a little too big? So anytime a horse was too big, there were all these rumors that it was really a hybrid and that wasn't purely a, what were called China ponies. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of controversy over that. But in Shanghai, they, they doted on these horses. They loved these, these little China ponies, shaggy and, and fat though they were. <laughs> I've ridden them before um, in Mongolia and in other places. And I mean, the canter is the most un- unbelievably uncomfortable thing. And to get these things to gallop, it's just a pain. It's just I can't uh, I can't imagine. The canter is just like I mean, you're just like going up and down. Like I mean, it's 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 insane. It's uh, luckily you know I've had a life in metal, so I'm used to <laughs> that kind of banging of head, bashing anyway. your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Jay, the book is is fundamentally character driven. Uh, Though there are quite a number of characters, <laughs> I mean a huge range of characters, it might be a good approach. I mean, you flicked at some of these, but let's 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 go through and name some of the more colorful characters, and have you offer us maybe little potted bios and a couple of anecdotes that capture who they were. Let, let's start. You, you talked about Cornell Franklin, uh, an American from from the South, uh, and his wife Estelle, uh, who are some of the people that we you know followed throughout the entire story. Um, and that that's pretty interesting. I mean, I think there's a great little aside you can talk about, you know, Estelle yeah. and who she ends up marrying. Yeah, yeah. so that was one of those, you know, when you're doing research and you, things turn out. Yeah, so Cornell Franklin was American, and, and most of the foreigners in, in Shanghai were British. Uh, but Cornell Franklin was American. Um, he's from Mississippi. Uh, he really did, in his, in his law school uh, yearbook, it said, you know, he was most likely to become a millionaire, and I guess he, he succeeded. Um, he wound up becoming a judge in uh, in Hawaii before it was a state, and then wound up going to going to Shanghai. So he was really interesting. He lived in these three very racially segregated environments: living in um, in Mississippi, then living in Honolulu, which was a very segregated city as well, uh, and then going on to Shanghai. So when he gets there, um, he uh, his wife Estelle she writes very colorfully in some colorfully in some unpublished um, uh, short stories about just the the alcohol fueled haze that was uh, em- enveloping white Shanghai, uh, and she was very unhappy there. Uh, and eventually, she winds up leaving, and uh, she takes these trips back to Mississippi, which keep taking longer and longer. And eventually, she divorces Cornell and marries her childhood sweetheart, who you may have heard of. His name is William Faulkner, um, <laughs> and in fact, stays married to Faulkner for the rest of his life. Uh, I mean, she is his companion for 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 most of his life. Um, she marries. He marries again, and it's his uh, his second wife, uh, Dallas, uh, who is uh, who is with him at the time of Champions Day. And his main competition are two men I also mentioned, um, but the most one who kind of focused the most on is is, is uh, Arthur Henchman. Um, and Henchman was the manager of HSBC. So if you're familiar with Shanghai, um, you'll see the big the big what was the big HSBC building with the big dome on the Bund. Um, and so his his corner office there overlooking so overlooking the the river. And even though it was just a branch of HSBC. Um, 
it was the most important branch. And so the, the, the head, excuse me, the headquarters was in Hong Kong, but uh, the most important branch was in Shanghai. And all these people were coming together to, 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 to brag with one another, to, to better one another, uh, to compete with one another at the, at the racetrack. Yeah. So the three of them were sort of the, the three, uh, competitive horse owners who, who rode in Champions Day. And, and so uh, in some sense, they're the three protagonists. Yeah, they, so the third one was uh, Bob Aitkenhead, who's a Scottish engineer. Right. Um, but they were all, they're all owners. So at this point, they weren't race, riding horses. The jockeys are another, uh, another really interesting angle well, on the story. Wouldn't they, in, initially, it was the owners who rode, though, right? It, I mean, up until like the 19... 19- what, it was, uh, yeah, right until the turn of the 20th century, and even later than that, a few. But um, yes, it originally it had all been you know, a very gentlemanly sport. You would have your, you'd own your horses, you'd ride them. But by the by the 20th century, it was more professionalized. <laughs> Let's talk about Wang Niger, who uh, was a pioneer in uh, developing rather strange English names for Chinese people. His English name is Nate <laughs> Wang, yes. N-A-T-E-S. One of, but one of the major intellectuals of the day, a foreign educated, fluent in English, he wrote regular columns and in some ways really captured the zeitgeist of Shanghai in the Nanjing decade. Tell us about yeah. him. I, I loved Nate Wong um, and Nate Wong Niger, and he uh, so went by Nate's, and I got corrected numerous times, you know, in copy editing because you know clearly I had an extra <laughs> S in there. It's like nope, Nate Wong is, is correct. Um, so Nate uh, Nate Wong, you know, he's the kind of person who I really. This is where it's a little bit um, limiting to be an historian because I really wanted to have him as a more prominent character. I just scraped together all the sources I could about him, and and I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't figure out when he was born. I couldn't figure out when and how he died. Um, but for about ten years, I had a pretty good track of what he was up to. Um, so he was a magazine editor, uh, and he was a translator. He was an actor, uh, and he was present in the international settlement. He was living right near the racecourse in the international settlement. Um, the place that you saw him the most in the historical record was, and you all may know this from different conversations, but there are these great uh, archives of the Shanghai Municipal Police. And so his he was interviewed by the Shanghai Municipal Police in 1938 um, because he had written he had he had not written them, but he, as publisher, had published uh, some some articles that were considered too critical of the Japanese. Uh, and this is where the politics get very complicated. So the British, who are running the international settlement, well, at this point, Shanghai is now completely surrounded by Japanese armies, and so the British are are quite are quite sensitive to the fact that they're they're really only able to stay there because the Japanese are allowing them to. They know there's not a whole lot right. they can do about it. And so when Nate Swang publishes these anti-Japanese screeds um, that uh, that brings the raises the ire of the uh, of the of the British police who tell him in no uncertain terms that he needs to he needs to cut it out. Um, and so you get these these cross currents of nationalism because obviously the Japanese are not at war with the British. They're kind of cooperating, but they're kind of antagonistic to one another. Um, China is occupied by the Japanese, and yet you've got this this free city of Shanghai, which is only free because it's occupied by colonizers. Um, and that just kind of gives some some sense of how of what a mess it was to be in Shanghai in the late 1930s. Indeed, indeed. Jay, you also write about the playwright S.I. Xiong or Xiong uh, Shi, who was also educated abroad. He wrote a successful play called Lady Precious Stream featuring one of the big names on the scene at the time, a clothing designer and entrepreneur named Ying Tang, who is apparently also a very talented actress. Can you talk about the play and about uh, Ying Tang? Yeah, so, um, so S.I. Xiong's play, Lady Precious Stream, is something that, it's one of those, those, I mean, I don't know what the current example of it, almost by definition, I don't know what the current example is, but in the 19... Um, the 1920s and 30s, well, 1930s, this would have been an enormously important piece of art. Um, it was, it was pray, it was, it was played in London uh, to to rave reviews. It was, it was considered to be really one of the most important examples of of cross cultural interaction. Um, so it was written by a Chinese, in he wrote it in England while he was there, went to go study, uh, do a PhD in literature, and. Uh, uh, it was based on an old uh, Peking opera, and it was uh, then produced in Britain, and then it was produced in Shanghai, where it was the starring role was played by by Ying Tang, uh, who, as you said, she had been a she was a socialite, she was a fashion designer. Her father was a doctor who tended to both um, Chinese and uh, and English patients, and so as a result, she 
wound up performing the play in Shanghai, but then she got an offer to go to play it on Broadway. This is one of the most interesting parts of the book to research because it was one of the places where I had both a Chinese record, Chinese language record and an English language record that were talking about the same things and to get their different perspectives. And both sides were very excited about the prospect of this, of this play, which was then going to be produced in New York, and it was going to be a product of, of China and of the West and of Shanghai. They were really excited because it was going to illustrate Shanghai. Um, and then it fell apart. Um, so it still, it still went up in Broadway, but Ng Tang didn't play uh, the lead role for reasons that seem to have something to do with her divorce. Um, and uh, now Lady Precious Stream, I mean, it still performed now and again. Uh, if, you, if you Google it, you can find uh, usually student organizations doing, doing presentations of it. Uh, but it's, it certainly is something that before I started researching this, this project, for instance, I wasn't familiar with it. And I think that's common to most people in my, in my situation. Right. The modern equivalent is the Three Body Trilogy. It'd have to be. <laughs> is that is that going to fade from our memory quickly? No, no, no. It's not going to at all. But I mean, it, it's it's the same thing. It's, it's Chinese work that's been sort of feted in in the West and is now being made into a, a Netflix right. series and that, that sort of thing. Right. Um, there's a, a lot in the book about urban planning, about architecture, about. A very deliberate effort by people in Shanghai, whether they were Chinese or, or foreigners or something between, to create a synthesis. Actually, I think that's one of the book's big themes is this idea of blending or, or hybridity, and it shows up a lot. But let's talk about, you, you mentioned uh, the district of Jiangwan, um, the area north of Suzhou Creek near where Fudan is, uh, and the ideas and the individuals that are behind that that district Um it's not really something I'd known much about before, and I'm now really eager to see what's still there. So uh, talk about Dong uh, Dayo, Dayu Dong, and his, his vision. Yeah, so, so Dong Dayo is the person who, you know, so many of the people in this book are, are what, what are now very commonly known as antiheroes, because um, they're people who are the, they're the protagonists, but you can't really root for them because they're, they're mostly kind of nasty. Um, Dong Dayo is an exception to that. He is, I, I have no problem calling him my favorite character in the book. Um, so he was, he was born in Hangzhou in, in 1899. Um, his father had been in the foreign service, or was in the foreign service, so he spent his childhood abroad in Rome uh, and in Japan, which are both really interesting places for that time in terms of architecture. There's interesting kind of modernist stuff going on, especially in Italy. Um, anyway, he's educated, he comes back to China, he's educated briefly in Beijing, uh, but before going to university in the United States, in Minnesota, actually. So he, he graduates from the University of Minnesota uh, and then winds up studying architecture. And after a brief time in New York City, uh, winds up going back to Shanghai. And when he goes to Shanghai, going back to Shanghai, going to Shanghai for the first time, going back to China. And uh, so, so when he gets there, he winds up being one of the main practitioners of this style that was along with this American, Henry Murphy, um, the style that was meant to sort of revive, it was kind of called Chinese Renaissance or, or maybe Ming Revival. Um, so it was, it was an architectural form that was meant to uh, revive a kind of Chinese classical architecture. But it was, of course, you know, this, we can't overgeneralize and say like there's Chinese architecture. It's really this kind of Ming monumental architecture. And that was what he did to try and bring that into Nanjing when you saw the uh, the building of many of the new capital buildings with when they moved the capital there for the Nanjing decade. And in Shanghai, something a little different goes on. So in Shanghai, it's a combination of these sort of Chinese Renaissance buildings, which are meant to clearly demonstrate that this is a Chinese counterpart to the foreign-dominated buildings down on the Bund. But at the same time, it's, it's not trying to be frozen in time. It's not trying to be locked into a, a, an Orientalist kind of fantasy um, that you have this very art deco, very modernist attempt to bring things together. And if you go up there to Jiangwan, still many of these buildings are, are there. One of my favorites was the building that was to be the, the, um, the aeronautics ministry for the new government. Uh, and it was shaped like an airplane. Um, so if you oh, wow. if you look at it from above, it's very clearly a, an airplane. But there's also a big stadium that was being built there. There's uh, the, the library and the museum. Those are all being built up there. And a lot of those were, were started in the early 1930s. And by 1937, when the Japanese uh, invade, many of them are, are ruined. Mo not most of them are destroyed, but many of them are ruined. And a lot of them have now they're still they're still there. Tina kind of granting them, uh, and uh, Patrick Cranley at a historic Shanghai. They they lead walking tours out that way, and they tell me that there's a lot worth seeing up there. 
you know, I'm, I've got to get there and I'm, I've got to do one of Tina's tours. Um, that would be fantastic. I, I really don't know that era in Shanghai is, or architecturally, I just don't know it as well as I ought to. There are some great, I can't wait to there are some great yeah. books on Shanghai architecture right now um, that are out. Um, I record, put, them, put them in the show notes, but there's uh, some terrific sure. stuff going on. Yeah, you just send them over to me and I'll, I'll definitely put them in. Um, you don't really judge the inhabitants of the Lone Island too harshly for their choices in the waning days for focusing, you know, all their attention on something that others might find entirely frivolous uh, as, you know, the end of, of Shanghai looms. Uh, but I can imagine that some people might see this as, you know, critiquing Nero's violin technique or, or commenting on the final arrangement of the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, how would you respond to to that kind of potential criticism? Oh, I think I think that's completely fair. Um, no, it actually it absolutely is. Um, you know what they were doing was was purposely distracting themselves from one of the great crises of of humanity, of what was going on in in uh, in 1940, in the late 1930s and early 1940s uh, in China. I mean, they were only 200 miles away from the rape of Nanking, um, and so they were you know they were mainly concerned with whether or not the the races were going to be delayed by the Japanese invasion. So those actions were were just despicable. Um, I mean, there's no way around it. Um, at the same time, it is something that happened, uh, and so I think that what I what I way I would respond to answer your question directly is that what I'm trying to do is kind of have it both ways a little bit. So I think that there's a lot of readers. There, if this book succeeds, a lot of people who will read it will be the first book about Chinese history that they that they read, and so I think it's kind of a shiny object, and the shiny object that is horse racing and kind of colonial society and all these things that people look at and it catches their attention because it's got this kind of style that is like a Netflix original series and you see it and it kind of gets people's attention in the same way that the that the the fancy the, the fabulous clothes in Mad Men um, can attract your attention and then the you know the, the horrible actions of Don Draper we we kind of get in and we start to interrogate what he's done but we're attracted <laughs> right. by the by the visuals so I think that that what happens in Champions Day is, if you look at what's going on there, I think it's a really arresting story. And I, I really do think there's a story there that's worth understanding. And then when you get into it to, to try to tell people, like, no, right now, I mean, literally right now in 2020, like, the West is still trying to come to grips with just how god-awful its behavior was for such a long period of time. And when you look at Shanghai today... I think that that energy that you can, that when I was researching and was writing, the energy that I could feel in Shanghai in the 1930s and 40s, that energy is still there in Shanghai. I mean, Shanghai has an energy that's common to many of the great cities of the world, but there aren't that many of those great cities in the world. Um, but I think now the difference is that the, the rules are being made by, by Chinese, by China. They're not being made by the West anymore. And I think that trying to come to terms with that, with that process, that move by which the people who had for so long lorded over so many people around the world are now having to come to terms with how they behaved. I truly don't know that the that the Western world has come to terms with just how um, with just how much it has to atone for, and so that may be too much to put onto the back of a of a China pony going around the the racetrack. But I do <laughs> think it is. I think it's a a way to get people's attention and to sh- to say to them, this is. There is something here that needs to be understood, and I think that it, it plays out in a lot of different directions. Jay, before we wrap up here, let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite parts of editing Sub China at the moment, which is your column, This Week in China's History. Uh, you've been writing it for us uh, for since several June, months now, since yeah. June, yeah, half a year, I guess. Um, I think all of us at Sub China really enjoy it, and we've had great feedback from our readers. For an academic historian, it strikes me that you're really good at writing for a popular non-specialist audience, which is not something that I can say for many of your colleagues. Um, Or most. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a polite person sometimes. Um, Is this something you've always known you were good at, Jay, or has this something, has it been something you've had to work at as you've, uh, you know, been writing this book and uh, doing other projects? I mean, you teach a lot of undergrads, right? I mean, that might be part of it too, right? You're... I, you're not like 
I, you, know, you don't have a lot of grad students. Yeah, I do. And, and, and Jeremy, if you will allow me to, to parse your, that discourse a bit and perhaps deconstruct the parse problematic the at the, <laughs> of the question. No, no, just when you had me impressed, Jay. No. Um, <laughs> okay, parse the discourse. No, I think that... Um, no, I think... Parse this. I, I think parse that, this, Jay. <laughs> I think Kaiser... Um, Kaiser put his finger on on it. I think that uh, you know, I teach I teach mainly undergraduate. I teach entirely undergraduates. I don't have any graduate students. I've sat in on a couple of doctoral committees over over time um, at other institutions. But I, I have teach undergrads, um, and so I do think that um, I've that's really my mission. Uh, is it's my career. It's my mission. It's what I do. Is trying to communicate to other. To, to communities who aren't academics. I mean, most of the people I talk to aren't people who study Chinese history professionally. Um, and that's got a big challenge to it, um, And but it is an opportunity. And it's one, that, I mean, the sub-China column has been, I mean, I'll say it's been a lot more work than I expected it to be. Um, it's been much more rewarding than I expected it to be um, because I've, I, I get, I get a ton out of finding these stories, trying to find the right balance. This has been the really hard part, trying to find the right balance of, Things that are kind of trivia, but trivia with the with an angle to it that makes it to be more than trivial, um, and then other things are sort of some of the big events like the McCartney mission or the you know the Boxer uprising, things that everybody quote unquote everybody knows about, um, but maybe they don't understand them in quite the way that that uh, professional historians do. And so then I think Jeremy, this is I think there's a compliment in there. I think the the point is trying to take what professional historians kind of argue about and distill that down to be like, okay, why does this matter to somebody who is just out in the world and how would it be interesting and worthwhile for them to to learn about it? That's really well put. I mean, that's exactly what you've done with this column is that you take some of the sort of big historiographic arguments or some of the, 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 the controversies that are in academia and you make them quite intelligible. I, I cannot recommend, recommend this, this column more highly. You are one of a number of historians out there who are sort of in the same project, I, I definitely cite Jeff Wasserstrom as w- another one who who is a great popularizer. Uh, who are some of the other people who you'd point to who you think do this particularly well out of academia? Uh, it's so I'm trying to think of now who I'm trying to think of the different hats that people wear. I mean, so so you took Jeff off the table. So Jeff, obviously, Jeff Wasserstrom is one of the people who do this does a lot. Um, there's other people who. Uh, who write really well, and so it's a question of getting, you know, people have to get the right um, the right audience. Kelly Hammond, who's at the University of Arkansas, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she's doing some really interesting work, especially to do with, with uh, Islam and the role of, of Muslims um, in, uh, in, in the 20th century. Uh, it's in World War II that she's writing about right now. Um, uh, Darren Byler, who's another sub-China contributor, uh, writing Absolutely, a story who does, yeah. I mean, and, and is writing about the, writing about the Uyghurs, um, Jim Millward is another person who who focuses a lot on the Uyghurs who who does stuff um, and is a, a professional historian. Um, the person who I find reading, who I really look forward to reading a lot are people like um, Yang Yang Chung, who's not a historian, but nonetheless she takes a lot of really sort of um, sophisticated ideas and communicates them to a to a broad audience. Um, Rana Mitter, I was just yeah, you know, I was I mean, going to say Ron. Ron yeah, is another Ron perfect is example. Um, so there's a lot. I mean, I think. I mean, Jeremy's points are well taken, and if I were if I were not talking to him, I would probably take up that position because I, I have very little patience uh, for when I when I listen to somebody talk and I have to I have to look up the words that they're using when there's a perfectly good word they could have already <laughs> used. Um, but I do think that the it's a bit of a, a straw man to talk about how you know academics. Are, are talking and, you know, they're in the ivory tower navel gazing. Cause I, I think that there's a lot of people who, who are out there um, really trying to engage the public. And uh, I think a lot of them do it really successfully. Kevin Cruz doesn't do this for China, but doing, doing this for like American history. He's one of those people who's out communicating with the, uh, well, fighting with Dennis D'Souza as well. So there's a, there's a lot of people out there. <laughs> a lot of people fighting with Dinesh D'Souza for sure. Uh, <laughs> there could always be more, though. Let's, let's just let's cannot clear. stand that prick. I just cannot stand that prick. My God, Jay Carter, what a pleasure having you on the show at last. Um, you have been such a friend to us, to, to Seneca and to Sub China. I'm glad we could finally do this. So uh, let's move on to recommendations. But first, really quickly, I do want to remind everyone that if you like the work we're doing with Seneca and the other podcasts in the Seneca Network, then the best thing you can do 
uh, to help us out is to subscribe to SubChina Access for just 88 bucks a year. You get a wealth of news on China delivered to your inbox every weekday. We've got, uh, I think we're running, aren't we running some kind of a deal, Jeremy? Um, Isn't it yes. like some half price thing? There's there's a special uh, festive season deal, uh, which All you can right. find on our website on our Christmas shopping list. Oh, yeah, yeah. Check out our... Oh, sorry, I'm things. in America now. We can't say... Well, we can say Christmas. Uh, what are we supposed to say? Holiday, Holiday season. Shopping. Holiday. Holiday Hanukkah, Diwali, um, Ramadan, right, 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 Christmas right. shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> All right, recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What you got? So something to depress you called a Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Rivalry that Unraveled the Middle East, a book I'm about... Uh, three quarters of the way through. Really I read fascinating. it. It's great. Yeah, yeah she, the, she's, she's terrific. The author is Kim, I don't know if you say Gatas or Khatas, uh, and it's uh, a horrifying history of how the last 40 years um, of uh, geopolitics in the Middle East has uh, led to the situation that what was once perhaps the most cosmopolitan part of the world is today what it is. I, I recommended that, that that very book on the show before. I guess you didn't listen oh, you to that did. episode, Jeremy. That's okay. Oh, <laughs> right. no, no. No, I, I think it's definitely <laughs> worth a second recommendation. Black Wave is great. Yeah, Kim Gahas, uh fantastic book. I mean, yeah, as you say, very depressing, but very relevant uh, in, in light of Saudi Arabian complicity in the recent assassination of, of Iran's top nuclear scientist. And, of course, they were complicit. I mean, come on, Netanyahu and Pompeo both... both met with the crown prince just like days before the assassination so hey uh so Um, since that's been recommended before let me hit you with a piece of escapism that is absolutely delightful a writer called lawrence block a new discovery for me recommended to me by my father and he has a series about a hitman called keller Uh, the first one is just called hitman and it is the most uh wonderful stuff you find yourself absolutely you know sympathizing with this character who is uh a hired assassin, and uh, it uh, makes it easier to contemplate the world than reading Black Wave, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Hitman. Uh, yeah, Jay, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat, as, as seems often to be the case, and give you two, um, just because I've been reading both of them and I couldn't decide which one to choose. Um, so one is one I think you may have recommended already, so it can be quick, which is uh, so Gordon H. Chang's uh, The Ghosts of Gold Mountain. Um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, the story of, of Chinese immigration and the, and the railroad, but I, more than any other book, I think it really, it really illustrates what the, what was going on and how that kind of migration paralleled so much of what was going on with European migration to the East coast. And I think, I mean, so, so Kaiser, you grew up, well, I guess you're from Buffalo, but you grew up in the West coast, right? Spent a lot of Binghamton, time there. Binghamton. Binghamton. Sorry. Now I've, now I put my foot in it. Um, but I know that, um, <laughs> You know, I think on the on the East Coast, there is such a such a, a bias toward European, just Europeanness having come into uh, with immigration, and I think that this Ghost of Gold Mountain really gave the gave me an understanding of how how those two immigration movements, the movement from Asia and the movement from Europe, um, what commonalities they have, what differences they have, and it's just beautifully told. So I would really emphasize Ghost of of Gold Mountain. Um, yeah, and that's Gordon H. Chang, the good Gordon Chang, not that. That other Gordon, the bad Gordon. I will Chang, leave that to you to Gordon say. Yes. G, um, Gordon G. Chang. And then the other well, book. There's the, God, the Gordon Chang with a very bad track record of predictions. You could call him that instead of the bad. <laughs> broken clock is right twice a day, right? Um, yeah, I know. It probably will be um, pretty soon. The other book that I've been reading and I, I'm just really enjoying a ton is um, maybe you're familiar with uh, it's called The Floating Coast uh, by Bathsheba DeMuth. Um, so Bathsheba is a. Um, Professor at Brown, but it's called the subtitle is an environmental history of the Bering Strait, uh, and so it's looking at um, that whole area of what she calls Beringia, so Alaska, and then the right. Soviet Far East, the Russian Far East, um, and it's an environmental history, but it's also you know, it goes from the Cold War to the fur trading, um, the way that climate change is is affecting that whole that whole region, and it's woven together with with uh, personal stories that it's it's rare because of the way that it does something that that I, I value really, really highly, which is to take these big historical processes and make them real with individual stories. Uh, and I think, so The Floating Coast, it's published by Norton. It was out last year. I think 2018 is when it's published. Um, but it was a, uh, but it's a terrific book. 
your book is published by Norton, is that correct? It is. Yeah, so you're you're just like plugging Norton books. I'm, huh? plug, I'm is, you, plugging. They paying you for this? I, I well, <laughs> Ghost of Gold Mountain was not. So there we go. Okay, okay. I'm sure they're paying massive, massive payola for these like yeah, history these book tips. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if you get me, yes, get me a mention. <laughs> I'm going to recommend uh, the four albums by the great progressive rock band Porcupine Tree that began uh, with In Absentia in 2002 and uh, spanned the to the incident in 2009. So it's In Absentia, uh, Dead Wing. Fear of a Blank Planet and The Incident. Uh, these are, I mean, Porcupine Tree has a lot more in their catalog, but these are the four just absolutely indispensable records from this band. Uh, I have to thank our friend and loyal supporter, Ed Sander in the Netherlands, who's just a huge progressive rock aficionado like I am. Uh, he's deeply into Porcupine Tree and the solo stuff that their frontman Stephen Wilson has put out in the years since. Uh, Ed has actually interviewed Stephen Wilson on quite a few occasions, that lucky son of a bitch. Uh, he's also sent me lots of cool rarities. So if you're like deeply into Porcupine Tree, hit me up. Um, we can talk about this stuff. I, I actually listen to this almost every night as I play ping pong with my wife. Uh, and she's actually learned to like it too. She doesn't object, although she... She Your describes poor, it as a long suffering wife. I know, right? But she 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 says that that Porcupine Tree and a lot of the other music I listen to, she describes it as Ligongnan Yue. So I guess that would be like tech boy music. I'm not sure what that means. Science that, nerd music more yeah, like. Yeah, it. It, it is sort of nerd music. Uh, I'll take it though. Uh it's just great stuff if you're into that. I mean, it's Jeremy, you should check them out. I think you would actually like them. I think I know Faye would. I know Faye would. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm yeah. It's great. Know. It's great music. Anyway, Jay, man, thanks so much. That was a great book. I'm really, really glad I got a chance to to, to read it and to talk to you about it. Uh, I really appreciate being on, and and uh, no, it was a pleasure. I, I it was a pleasure. That's all I can say. As, as I said earlier, pleasures are hard to come by in 2020. So I will <laughs> I will take it doubly. Take them when you can, Jeremy. As always, indeed. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care.